Welcome to Always Be Watching. It's our podcast dedicated to the many things that we watch every week. On this week's podcast, Chris takes off to the heavens with his Star Trek Picard show, and he questions what should be placed in mouths with a new Netflix show about street food. Meanwhile, Dan, that's me, he's focused on a TV's hippest new comedy, Aquafina is Nora from Queens. That's quite a name to say. And he also talks about the documentary At The Drive-In, which isn't about the band so much as it's a documentary about an actual drive-in. Go get your concession snacks and tune your car radio in to the necessary frequency, because the feature presentation that is this podcast is about to get started. G'day, Dan. Chris. It's great to be here uh, on the microphones with you yet again. It is certainly a obligation that I feel. <laughs> I mean, it is a pleasure to be here. So. Yes, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, how's your week been? Look, the week's good. We started with a long weekend. Well, I mean, people may say that you end the week with a weekend. Mm. But when you've got a Monday involved, then suddenly that's the beginning of the week. So is it really a long weekend or is it a weekend plus one? I think, yes, that. Yeah, weekend plus one. Yes, definitely. Which is how I'm going to refer to it from now on. Great. Some people may call it Australia Day, others call it Invasion Day. Me, I call it plus one day. Yeah, plus one day, weekend plus one. Yeah. The good thing about a uh, weekend plus one um, is that you get more time to watch television. Well, that's largely what I did. And <laughs> I'm shocked to hear that. Some people may say, look, this is a day where, and I'm not going to get into the political side of things. I think most people who know me know how I feel about it, but... People may sit down thinking, you know what? It's the day gazetted as Australia Day. You should watch some Australian stuff. Not me. I watch whatever the heck I want as a watch. (laughs) That's that's good, dude. I'm glad to hear it. That's my political stance. I was reading your newsletter this morning and you were quoting from the excellent article in the Financial Review um, about the Australian (laughs) film industry. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I'm not surprised that you didn't watch it. What's that about? Uh, It's basically about the fact that um, Australian audiences have routinely turned off from Australian uh, produced films over the last 10 years. And it was, uh, it had a lot of theories behind it, but one of which was that um, the, you know, necessity to um, uh, provide what is required from the funding bodies, etc., in order to create. Uh, a films with a budget is um, perhaps not in line with um, p- perhaps not the best way to make compelling and entertaining films that people actually want to see and that the idea of um, the sort of jingoism that we should be supporting Australian films for the sake of them um, being Australian is probably less imp- it's probably a harder sell to people than just giving them something they actually want to watch. Yeah, so he doesn't say that the Australian film industry has been bereft of good movies over the last no, 10 years. No, no. Like, he starts a few of the good ones. So, he mentions The Babadook, for example, yes. which is probably my favourite film from the last 10 years locally. Uh, but, yeah, he sort of says that, you know, while there's a couple of good filmmakers like Jennifer Kent who made that, largely it's just kind of a empty space where even good directors are struggling to be able to get movies that people want to see made. And he kept on talking about the fact that, you know, there'll be the Sydney International Film Festival, which will have, like, a big debut for an Australian film. People yeah. will applaud. It'll be big numbers for that. But then those same people are usually people that work in the industry anyway and yes. aren't necessarily there to see other movies as part of the film festival. And when that film opens to a wider release, the cinema's just empty. The, um, the Babadook, Babadook was the only film off that list I had seen, oh, which really? I think <laughs> means that I've only seen one Australian film this, this decade. Now, Jennifer Kent made a second film called... I want to say it's called The Nightingale, which I would really like to see because I love Babadook. Mm. Uh, and this looks particularly moody. 
Uh, I know that there were quite a few walkouts when it screened. Excellent. Uh, Good sign. I want to say it was the Sydney Film Festival again because there's some very confronting uh, material that people have to work through in order to be able to watch it. Because I'm just the hard guy that I am, okay, I should be okay. <laughs> that, I'm sure you'll be fine, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe we can make a date of that and actually watch something together for a change. Yeah, I mean, it's on home video now. But well, that's we, right. we do that in the house. Yeah, well, I didn't mean going out somewhere. I didn't mean going to the cinema, Dad. I'm not a freak. I was going to dress up. Um, Corsage. Last time I went to the cinema, I had a cup of tea. Oh, really? It was excellent. I highly recommend it. Very civilized. Uh, Chris, we're here to talk about TV, though. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I also just wanted you to know that I'd read one of your newsletters. Okay, that was very nice of you. (laughs) I read them all, Dan. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, Yes, so are we going to... And also, if people want to subscribe to it, Ordinarily, I'd send people to alwaysbewatching.com, mm. but I'm having some domain issues at the moment. <laughs> so, where are they going to go? Well, it depends what day you're reading and you're listening to this. So, today's the 28th of January. It's a Tuesday, 12.53 p.m. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if people are looking to get to the website right now, it's not going to work. In about two or three days' time, it should probably be okay. So, February onwards, should all be good. Alwaysbewatching.com. Otherwise, you could sign up at the very sexy abw.substack.com. Or uh, abw.geocities.com. Net dot slash au. Yeah, and if you want to find that, just go to askjeeves.com. Uh, ask Jeeves. Okay. That's right. Um, Chris, but we're doing this here podcast. Yes. What the heck's it about? Uh, the podcast is about uh, two people talking about things that they have watched over the last week or so in the same manner that perhaps one would do with a friend as they were catching up for a coffee or a cup of tea or the way you might discuss um, world events and what's going on around your, your water cooler at your typical office scenario. That's really succinct. I can't think of a better way that I would describe it. <laughs> but if I was to come up another way to describe it, let's say your best friend is a peanuts mascot for a peanut snack company. Now, in a savage marketing move, the company's decided to brutally murder your friend. That's, yeah, harsh. Yeah, it's a relatable story. As you're standing around at his funeral, okay, you're wondering, like, you know, which family member's going to score his monocle and top hat. Okay, but you strike up a conversation with a fellow mourner, and through the tears you ask them what they've been watching recently, and it leads to a rich and robust conversation. And that is what we try to do here on the podcast. All right, we're going for richness and robustness. I don't know whether I'm cut out for that, but I'll give it my best shot, Dan. Yeah, and RIP to the planter's peanut from the US. <laughs> what happened to the peanut? So there's this company called Planters. I know the, I know the monocle wearing peanut, yeah. which you were re- referencing. So there's an online ad at the moment with um, the character, I'm going to call him Mr. Peanut. Oh, yeah, why not? I think that's his name. I, I don't quite know for sure. But he's driving in a car with... Uh, from Veep, Matt Walsh. Right. And somebody else, I forget who's in the car. There's a car accident. He goes flying through the windshield and dies a terrible death. Okay, this is an online ad. Right. Okay, but there's an ad because the Super Bowl is just a few days away, Chris. Yes, yes, right. And so their big ad for the Super Bowl is the funeral of Mr. Peanut. This is very strange. It is very strange. And so everyone's curious to know what's going to happen. So, my presumption will be that there's a passing of the monocle to the next Peanut. Wow. So... Probably some sort of younger, hipper peanut. <laughs> like the Poochie. Of, the Poochie of uh, peanuts. peanuts. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. Uh, when, Mr. When, when Poochie Peanuts not on screen, all the other people from Veep should be asking, where's, where's Poochie, Poochie Peanuts? peanuts? <sighs> it's good stuff. Uh, the yeah. world of advertising is complex and fascinating. Um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be an <laughs> online ad as a follow-up just yeah, showing that P- uh, Poochie Peanut died on his home, back to his home planet. All right, now talking of home planets, mm. um, I'm going to... Oh, no, you have to ask me what I've been watching. Well, I like that you're a stickler for this format. Because I was trying to go for the segue. Chris, 
Have you been watching anything recently? Well, so? speaking of Hope Planets, uh, I have been watching a incredible. Uh, I watched the, the first episode of an incredible new series called Star Trek Picard. Oh, it's all right, number one. I came here to find safety, but one is never safe from the past. Please, sir, someone's after me. I have an appointment. Your name, please, sir. Picard. P-I-C-A-R-D. It's nice to see you up and around again. We have an obligation to investigate. There is no we, Jean-Luc. Admiral, I am standing up for the Federation, for what it should still represent. This is no longer your house, Jean-Luc. Go home. Chris, you refer to the show as an incredible series. Uh, was that sarcasm or are you legitimately into this? <laughs> no, I was really into it. Oh, I'm a, you know me, I'm a bit of a late comer to the whole Trekkie universe. I didn't, um, I watched the occasional episode of um, Next Generation. Of course, I watched all the 60s stuff multiple times because yeah. it's, yeah, it's important to do that and very fun. Um, I've never been a, a obsessive Star Trek fan, but in recent years, as my life has um, plateaued uh, into <laughs> middle-age mediocrity, yeah. I uh, find myself more and more drawn to these kind of uh, serial space-type adventures. And, um, yeah, so I'm eagerly awaiting and lapping up any uh, Star Trek that might come our way. And this I was very excited about. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. And this may be a bit personal. Uh, what's your first Star Trek? Uh, it would have been the 60s Star Trek. Yeah. And then it would have been uh, dipping in and out of Next Gen. And I watch quite a bit. Like, I haven't revisited it, but I watch a lot of Deep Space Nine um, when that was on. Uh, and that I was a very big fan of that one. And then sort of have just dipped in and out. Like, I was seven when Star Trek Next Generation launched, but that was in the US. I reckon it was like two years later we yeah, got it here probably. in Australia. That makes sense. Because I feel like about nine or ten when that happened. Yeah. And I would have been mid-teens, so as a, as a few years your senior, that yeah, makes yeah. sense. Uh, so, my, I would have thought my entry point was probably Next Generation, because it was right about that time. And I have a very strong memory of Channels 9, it would have been playing like the first episode, which I don't think I saw the first episode. I think I was excited by it and never saw it for some reason. Right. I was probably out drinking or something. <laughs> uh, but like, also, I know at high, like, yeah, at high school, in primary school, you know they'd show you movies when the teachers didn't want to teach? Yes. Like one of the films that we saw was Star Trek Four. That's the one with the whales. Yes. So I reckon that might be my first Star Trek. Yeah, no, and you probably... I definitely watched the movies as a kid. Yeah, I really yeah. remember them. Um, patchy as they were. And they always were just like, oh, well, it, it's not quite Star Wars, but it'll, <laughs> it'll do. Yeah, so like I always think of Picard as being like my captain. Yes. But like Kirk is like spiritually, Kirk's definitely my captain. But Picard, like he's my guy. And so having grown up with Next Generation, like is pretty much like the basis, the foundation of my Star Trek. I, you know, when I saw all the Star Trek Next Generation movies, there was no way I was going to miss those, even though most of them were terrible. And that probably leads us into Picard. So when they announced Picard was coming, I was like, it's Picard, he's back. And what I hadn't expected was that so much of the first episode of Picard would be having its basis, its roots come from the very last Star Trek Next Generation film called Nemesis, oh, which I'm yeah. sure you completely across, Chris. Yes, yes. And if you're like me, I don't remember a single thing that happened in Nemesis. <laughs> yeah, I have seen it, definitely. And I also, I probably should have rewatched it to give myself yeah. some kind of grounding on this. But I don't, I don't feel like I really, uh, I don't feel, I didn't feel lesser for, for not having watched it. I didn't feel like it ruined the experience for me. I agree. So there's a sequence at the beginning where you find out a lot of his motivation and a lot of things that, that kickstart this is stuff that happened from Nemesis. 
But I thought that was the stuff they were talking about was stuff that had happened between Nemesis and... Ah, but it was actually stuff straight out of Nemesis is what they were referencing. So, if you don't know Nemesis at all, like myself and like yourself, then you can just walk into this thinking, oh, well, they just give you the backstory. Yeah, which was done very succinctly and in a fun way. And, uh, you know, it was was very well detailed. uh, As fun as it could make a massacre of a whole planet. Yeah, so what is the premise of Picard? So the premise of Picard is... And obviously I know because I saw it, but this is the, po- the podcast, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the pretense here. Uh, so, of course, obviously, yes, the reason to be excited, Patrick Stewart is a absolutely charming, inc- impossible to not like, um, very watchable human being. Um, I think since his uh, Star Trek days, he's kind of developed this very quirky persona, um, which is, uh, you know, and I don't think a lot of people knew about his Broadway kind of uh, background and, you know, how, how serious an actor he was. Uh, so it's all been fun ha- having that play out over the years. We never ever thought he'd come back to Star Trek again. He was clearly ready to finish when he finished it. Um, so that's. I'm just. Uh, I guess I'm just ex- illustrating my excitement for it as well. Because um, I don't think it was a bad job for him, and I think he probably would have been no. happy coming back every two or three years and just doing a movie. Because that's clearly what they were doing. Yeah. But considering that they made, I think, one good movie out of the five or six. Oh my did. god, was it really? Is that that many? Wow. Okay, so it was Star Trek Generations was number seven that introduces Kirk uh, Picard into the movies. Yeah. And then there was First Contact, which is pretty good. Yeah. That's the big action one. Yeah, yeah, war. I do remember that one. That one was good. And then you got Star Trek 8, which... Oh, sorry, 9. Right. 9, which is the one where so they're on a tired. planet and I've got to rescue some people. Oh, my God. And no, yeah, no. they are very, very tired <laughs> by that point. And then Star Trek 10 was Nemesis. Wow. So, were they actually still... So, there was a continuing series from the original Star Trek films is the way they were presented. Yeah. Wow. So they had a crossover film where yeah. they killed off Captain Kirk. Yeah, I kind of remember. Well, they didn't that. quite die because in the books. Because Kirk can never die. No. Um, who, who can contain that level of testosterone? <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, so backstory is what you actually asked me that I didn't answer. Um, so, Kirk, is, we, we, we open with Kirk in uh, a chateau. Picard. <laughs> with Picard, the, the, the namesake of the, of the Once show. Once he gets Shatner in mind. <sighs> That's right, he's hard to shake. Can't shake the Shatner. Um, so we have him with Picard uh, living a tortured existence in a luxurious French villa in the countryside where everybody would dream to live and wake up in the morning. Poor Tiger. Uh, he's obviously uh, missing... He's got a cool dog. He's missing his days in space. He's got an amazing dog, which he hilariously calls number one. Yep. Um, which I can just imagine uh, old um, Riker. What's his name? Well, cousin, well, Lieutenant Will Riker. <laughs> I could just imagine Riker spitting in his grave. Well, he's still alive because he comes into one of the future episodes. Oh, well, thanks, Dan. Um, it's in the, in the, at the end. They said his was coming up in the season. Um, so, yes, they did do that, which I, which I felt, thought was weird and interesting. But anyway, um, he's got his lovely dog there, and he's clearly an old man. He's, he's having a bit of trouble getting around, and he's clearly uh, reminiscing fondly on his days um, traveling the universe and missing those days. Now, see, I've got a different read on it. Okay. Which is that I see the Picard that we uh, introduced to in this as a man who's filled with regrets about what he's done in life. Right. And so, while I think that if you sat him down and said, you know, of the you know things that you did, like, did you contribute a greater good? He'd probably say, well, yes, I did lots of good things along the way, but I think my career was heavily marred by what I did here and the way that I allowed the organization that I worked for, being Starfleet, to suddenly reveal that it really was kind of corrupt and against the ideals and that he wasn't more active in bringing Starfleet along with the... Uh, um, actions I that he forced so. them to go along with. Sure. So I, I think he looks at that part of his life as somewhat of a failure, but also being disappointed by the system he worked for. Yeah, and I think like he talked about, you know, he did discuss how 
under duress, he discussed how uh, yeah, that, his frustrations with that and how he tried to do what he could, and then he didn't. Yeah. So he's very angry. There's, there's a lot of regret there. He's definitely angry, and yeah. he's definitely angry about the um, decisions that were made for, by Starfleet, uh, and um, you know, causing him to leave in disgrace, kind of. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think he's someone who like thinks sort of wistfully about what he. Did when he was a captain. I think that it's a period I think of his he life a, that's filled with like torture and regret. But I think he had a wistful uh, sense of uh, yearning to return to the days of of, of the final frontier and uh, you know looking at the stars. He mentions as much in one scene where he talks about how he didn't expect to miss the sort of vast emptiness of space as much as he does. Yeah. Anyway, Dan, you'll argue with me no matter what I say, um, uh, and and with good reason. You're you're a lot more across it. No, well, I wouldn't say that. Like you know, this is just the way that I read the episode and. It Reminded me a lot of the, well, some would say like the best Star Trek movie. I'd say maybe the only good one. Um, <laughs> there's a few good ones. It's me just being a bit sort of pedantic. But Star Trek's Who Wrath of Khan Wrath opens of Khan. very much with Captain Kirk sort of thinking back to the way he's lived his life and the, that he doesn't really have much to live for anymore because he's reached the stage of his life where now he's more ceremonial than he is an active participant in the world. And yeah, it's just sure. interesting to see this Picard series because. Star Trek 2, there was definitely Star Trek the motion picture, which like brought them back and they were like, hey, look, we're back in movies. But I feel that Star Trek 2 was kind of the thing that sort of actually acknowledged the fact that, you know, some time has passed since the TV show and this is yeah. kind of where the characters are right now and moving forward. And it feels like Picard is kind of taking that same role in the TV series universe of it all, saying, hey, look, this is kind of where we are. A big period of time has passed. We're about to pay forward for like new adventures. And it just kind of seems like it's just interesting that I've come from that same position of introspective. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. And also another thing in common um, with, well, this is an interesting one to say, actually, but, you know, Star Trek uh, Wrath of Khan had a lot of amazing uh, action in it, which, of course, the first, uh, the first Star Trek film is mostly just people talking um, and barely had even had spaceships. So, but Khan um, had all these awesome earworms. Well, but, uh, yeah, that's right. The earworm was fantastic. How- Do you think at any point in Picard we're going to see Ricardo Montalbalon brought back? <laughs> I, would, I, I hope so. What I really, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was the fact that they've found this very clever way to introduce, introduce a lot of action, even though we're not really in space and stuff. But there was heaps of great hand-to-hand combat, which is, of course, a, you know, a mark of the original Star Trek series, which I thought was really cool. And I really enjoyed that. And, of course, um, the other thing that is incredibly enjoyable about it is um, Picard's yearning for his um, lost soulmate, um, Data. And uh, all the, uh, you know, the, the memories and the, the obviously very the very beautiful relationship that he had um, with this uh, synthetic uh, human. Yeah, so, I mean, Picard... Oh, sorry, uh, Data was always a character who was the childlike yeah. sort of character who was learning about humanity and trying to become as human as he could and trying to experience all the joys and pains that humanity brings with it. And so, yes. I can understand if you're working and living alongside that on a regular basis for, you know, 10, 15 years or however long their relationship was... Like that's got to be like a very meaningful. Yeah, like, he obviously had a very fatherly kind of relationship with um, Data, which, when you look back on, is obvious, but maybe wasn't. You know, mm. was, wasn't wasn't played as f- for sentimentality at the time, quite so much. And I and I think you know at the time it was he was sort of. Uh, th- th- that kind of he took the place of that Spock kind of character who was you know also trying to learn about humans and uh, emotions and thinking about things in a non-logical fashion, much like a robot. So when I pressed play on Picard, the one thing I was expecting is a whole lot of fan service mm-hmm. and for the show to be practically inaccessible to anyone who isn't completely in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Now I was I started watching the show with my wife who was looking at her phone and not really doing anything and didn't see that I pressed play on an episode of Star Trek. And it's like, she, I got about a minute in before she realized what was on. She's like, can we watch something else? 
And it's like, okay, whatever. But like people like her who have seen Star Trek in the past and Star Trek's not really for everyone. No. Like, that's totally fine. And I think a lot of 90s Star Trek with a lot of the techno babble that used to exist yeah, in yeah, the episodes. Huge, like huge barrier to a lot of people yes. wanting to watch Star Trek. Yes. So I was looking at this thing. This is going to be more of the same, but I was surprised watching this to see how clean an entry point I think it is for people like her who haven't really watched Star Trek before. But it probably opens the idea of watching, you know, human stories about, you know, people who happen to be doing stuff in space. Yeah. And it just struck me that I think that maybe the show does itself a disservice by leaning so hard into the nostalgia associated with Picard. Because this is a show that I think probably actually stands reasonably well on its own. I agree completely. And I'm l- looking forward to see where they go. Like, I think, you, we are, as you said, there was a preview for upcoming episodes where there's obviously going to be a little bit of fan service uh, coming up. And you can uh, you can expect a certain amount of that. And, I, I, you know, I can understand people getting fans, getting very excited about that stuff. So mm. it's good that it's in there. But, yeah, I um, also watched it with my partner. And she had no um, – she, she found it very enjoyable. I would say her entry point to Star Trek was Discovery yeah. um, a couple of years ago. So and Which we should say is a show that the, fa- the fans – I use the quotation marks yeah. around that – do not care for. No, that's right. It has not turned out well in the wash. And I um, I loved the first season, and then I think I don't think I kept up with it for most of the second season. But um, I think the second season of that had some very strong moments. It's ve- yeah. I think it was a chore to sit through a lot of it. But even though this is a very different show and very differently paced, I think that um, she enjoyed it just as much as, or maybe not just as much as that. I won't put that. <laughs> it, but but definitely sat through it and put up with it. And I think um, you know is definitely interested. It's it, it's interesting, you know. That the the actual um, storyline um, that is being set up for the obviously the course of the season was very very cool. Uh, there was I, I think a bit of a, a what I would even call a, an, an unexpected moment, maybe more than a less than a twist, where I kind of was really caught off guard um, by the way it was developing, and you know what I assumed was going to happen out over the season kind of got abruptly ended really quickly, um, which I thought was really cool. And look, I'm just super I'm super on board for the rest of Picard. Yeah, um, I'm, I don't know if I'm super on board with it, but I'm definitely keen to keep watching it. Do you think we should watch the um, movie? What, what did you say it was called? It's What's called Star Trek Nemesis. One? Right, yeah. I think and I might. I'm tempted, but I also know that it's not a good movie. Yeah, right. Maybe just read the blurb. Maybe read the uh, Wikipedia entry on the storyline and that might be enough. But um, what do you think? The uh, Has there been time to gauge the uh, internet's, um, the toxic fan base's uh, response <laughs> to, the, to this uh, so, show so far? So the general consensus seems to be that people are digging it cool and this is like so with the fans I think that if there's a show that leans into the nostalgia that people have for the show and definitely sort of plays heavily into what they're looking for I think they're immediately just going to give it a thumbs up sure I don't think the Star Trek fan base is as discerning as they think that they are right as evidenced by a lot of Star Trek over the years. <laughs> I, I enter into the evidence here Star Trek Voyager <laughs> yeah, right. a show that I've watched every episode of right and I also went through in Star Trek Enterprise right Mm. Which is the one with Scott Bakula? That's Star Trek Enterprise. Ooh, and you, it, it's no good. Well, I'd say no. Okay. Uh, fans would probably say that when they changed the showrunners show around in the later seasons, it uh, found his voice. But quite Jeez. frankly, what a bunch of nerds. <laughs> There's a lot to get through to get to that point. Um, I just liked it because it had the Quantum Leap dude in it, but I never yeah. watched it. Um, oh yeah, well that's interesting. I, I, I'm not surprised really because it wasn't it, it was it wasn't too different to what you would expect. I, I I would imagine. No, I mean pretty much the show that I saw was exactly what I walked in expecting. Yeah, I just didn't expect that it'd be as accessible as it was, and 
Josh. Yeah, it's it's good. Excellent. All right. So that is uh, Star Trek Picard, and you'll have to say where that's available. Uh, that is available in the US on CBS All Access, mm. but in every other territory around the world, you can find it on Amazon Prime Video. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, now it's the point of the show where I ask you, um, what have you been watching? Look, Chris, I've watched a lot of things, but I've decided to just narrow in this week. You always have, Dan. (laughs) It's been a big week. You know what? Can I just say? Yes. And this is going to maybe factor in more the second thing I want to talk about this week. But I'm making it a like a pledge to myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to actually make an effort to watch more movies. Oh, cool. Generally. Because I think maybe the last like five or six years, I've been very focused on episodic TV. Mm. But this year, I decided, you know, I'm actually going to make sure I watch like one or two movies a week. Yeah. And already this week, I think I've watched a lot more than that. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah. I watched the movies last week. I watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, the first ha- one. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Uh, the second one. And Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. That's the third one. You might be shocked to learn diminishing returns. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Very good. <laughs> but it's true. They get really terrible. Oh, they get shockingly bad. <laughs> My kid loved it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I watched a new sitcom that's produced for Comedy Central in the US called Aquafina is Nora from Queens. <laughs> I need my social security number. Do you have it? You don't know your own social security number? A lot of people don't know their social security numbers. And if I can make it work, anyone can make it work. Are you across the phenomenon that is Aquafina right now? Uh, I don't even understand the words that you're saying in a sequence. No. Yeah. No, I'm saying Aquafina because that's how it's spelled. Maybe it's pronounced Aquafina. Mm, not I don't, sure. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> so Aquafina, she's a multi-hyphener. She's a rapper. That's kind of how she came about. Mm-hmm. But she's also been doing a bit of acting and I think she's producing some stuff now. She had been, like, I think her big breakout, her breakthrough was Crazy Rich Asians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she also appeared in Ocean's 8, which is where I first properly noticed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also starred in The Farewell, which is a movie that came out recently. That's also very good. Mm. Uh, so those are three, like, high-ish profile big things. And so she's been given her own TV show now. Now, her show is very much the sort of show that I really like, which is just a handful of people who are just kind of interesting, fun characters, and they get involved in different situations every week. So kind of just a traditional sitcom format, but without the laugh track and it's, you know, just adventures. So think about things like, say, The League, for example. Mm -hmm. I love The League. Yeah. You know, that kind of level of things. So this is her. She is a woman who is, you know, I'm guessing roughly the age that she is. So I'm guessing (laughs) mid to late 20s. Yes, that sounds I'm not even quite sure. She's living at home with, I think, her parents. I don't really quite catch the setup for this, but I don't think it's important. Nor did they maybe even mention what the setup is exactly in the show. But she's there living with a family. She has uh, her grandmother living in the house. There's a guy that might be her father. I'm not entirely sure. It could be an uncle. But anyway, he's played by B.D. Wong, who I really like that guy. Yeah. Uh, he... Okay, so there's a dual storyline taking place. So their terrible cousin, and he gets referred to as like aunt something or other. So it's Orkafina's aunt. I'm not sure where the relationship actually is. She's a hippie who lives out in the commune and played by the great Ming-Na Wen. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not sure what her st- like stage name is at the moment. Sometimes she's Ming-Na, sometimes she's Ming-Na Wen. Not sure what it was here. But anyway, not I important. really like her. She's great. And she's got her, I think, son that comes along with her. And like the son's like a precocious-y sort of like 10, 12-year-old kid. Lots of good gag opportunities okay, there. So Orkafina's like uh, talking to him upstairs in a bedroom and he's wielding like a big sort of plusky type thing. Anyway, he's like wrestling with her slightly and ends up sort of whacking her in the, uh, uh, how does one say? Nether regions? The vaginal area. <laughs> right. 
anyway, the result of this is, and if you're listening to this in a car with your kids, <laughs> maybe listen to a different podcast for a bit, because I'm about to use the word queef. <laughs> she can't stop queefing. Right. There is a lot of air that needs to be expelled from her body. Yeah. And she just keeps on making these noises. Mm-hmm. So she's like, you know what? I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm just going to ride this out. And, you know, that could be a thing. But then her friend who's uh, dating like this musician who's blowing up on SoundCloud right now, he's someone who samples a lot of noises and he can hit, <laughs> he can sense already where this is going. But he's got some studio time going and sh- her friend wants uh, Nora from Queens to come along and hang out in the studio. Otherwise, she's going to call her other friend and, you know, she's jealous. So, she's like, you know what? I'm going to come to the studio. Sure. So, she comes to the studio. There's some queefage. He hears it. He gets excited. He samples it. And then, like, within a couple of days, he's already mixed it into a track that's blowing up on SoundCloud everywhere. Right. And obviously, it's a lot of Nora in ways that she had ideally not wanted the public to hear. Right. Even though she actively stood in the studio and provided him with a whole bunch of queefing noises. We never know where this stuff's going to end up, I guess. Classy show. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Uh, um, obviously, I'm into it. Yeah. And the side storyline as well is that the same kid who inflicted the damage, he's playing around with the BD1 character's uh, Tinder, Mm. and he's, like, selecting women for him to go out with. The thing that's kind of fun about it, though, is there's this great moment where he starts telling, like, the BD1 character all these things about the women, and it's like, how did you know that? And he's like, well, I read their bios. (laughs) And it's completely changed Tinder for him. (laughs) Right, yes. Yeah. Um, that's very yeah that's funny they're two good setups yeah two I good like setups it. and frankly it's a thing where every week it's going to be something different I'm sure it's not queefing every week <laughs> that's just this week but yeah it's funny funny like, laughs literally laughed out loud a whole bunch of times wow great cast on it I looked at the IMDB and a whole bunch of guest cast actors that are coming up over the next few weeks lots of people that you know and love from other things this is a show which you know she's the it girl of the moment and I think she's just taking every like advantage of that excellent our ratings for the show have been huge in the US like for Comedy Central mm-hmm. um, so this is going to be a big thing going forward cool we're going to see some more episodes and we're going to see absolutely Aquafina uh, in more stuff so it was huge when it launched in the US last week in Australia it's going to be airing on the Comedy Channel on Foxtel or if you're someone who's got Fetch in their household you can see it on the, US, uh, the Australian Comedy Central Channel and that's going to be Wednesday nights at about 9.30ish Excellent. Sounds mm. good. I'm in, Dan. Yeah, it's I'm going to watch it. Definitely give it, it a look. It's, I mean, obviously, I'm going to watch it. It's like exactly the kind of crap I watch all the time. Yeah. No, it's exactly the sort of show that the two of us are up on. <laughs> yes. Fantastic stuff. And yeah. I hadn't even heard of it. This is one of the things I like about doing our uh, podcast. It's what we do here. Uh, Chris Yates, you saw something else? I did see something else. And I'll, I'll be brief about this, but um, it's an excellent show. It is on the Netflix, and it is uh, called Street Food. Unfortunately, we don't have many street food stands anymore. But Toyo's place is different. It's been running Izakaya Toyo on that street for 26 years. People really don't go there for the nice view or for the nice location, but to meet Toyo, to enjoy his food and performance. Okay, Chris, street food. Now, a lot of the food shows on Netflix tend to be the same, like, food-type people who just have, like, new shows and they're, like, sub-brands. Of yes, stuff going which on. I believe this is. So this is a spin-off from something? This is a spin-off from Chef's Table, I believe, which is, okay. I think I have uh, called on this very podcast the greatest um, food-slash-cooking show that I've ever seen. It's just fantastically done. It focuses on the people and um, the uh, stories behind the people that make the food while still having very 
interesting and, um, you know, still beautiful cinematography and fantastic um, food to make you hungry. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you can basically um, transfer the exact um, – the exact premise and the exact formula from Chef's Table into the street food thing. So we look at a whole bunch of different cities. The two that I've seen are um, Bangkok and Osaka. Yep. Um, Bangkok, I watched. Um, rec- I actually watched the Osaka one first because someone was telling me about uh, basically how great it was and that I should watch it. And I've got a friend living in Osaka who uh, has um, eaten at this place and said it was incredible. Um, and so the Osaka one was the story of Toyo's um, Izakaya uh, stall, little tiny stall where he um, just like quirky, very old guy um, making all the making all the food using this like burner thing. One of those I'm doing the actions that no one can see. You know those things that the chefs use. Yeah, to, like, like the burners and and the, like the, with the flame. Yeah, with the flame that comes out of it. And he's like got it's his he's got his hands in there. He does this amazing he has this amazing technique where his hand is in a bucket of ice. Yeah. for the entire time that he's not like cooking with it in the direct flame, and he's picking it all up, and it's just incredible. Um, so why is his hand in the ice? Because he puts the fire on his hand when he's like oh, moving around. Oh, so that's around. to cool off after. Yeah, so he's like gotcha. constantly going in there so his hand doesn't fall off from being burned, I guess. Um, but, you know, the, the the really interesting thing was we got this incredible kind of backstory of Osaka, which I've never, I've never been to that city. Um, and I didn't realize that it had a sort of a very different culture to the rest of Japan where it's a lot younger, a lot more uh, interested in the people in Osaka. I think it's, a, you know, they've got a very big university culture, so it's got a lot more um, focus on kind of individuality and people are a bit more, uh, yeah, people are a little bit more experimental and um, against the grain than they are in a lot of other uh, cities in Japan, which is obviously a very, um, you know, monoculture kind of place in the, in an interesting way still. Yeah, I don't, like, I'm not sure I'd bias that entirely. I mean, definitely if you compare it to Kyoto, which is just up the road, like, mm. which these big two cities are within, like, about yeah. half an hour train right away from each other. Like, that's probably definitely true, but, like, there were definitely pockets of Tokyo that I went to that felt very similar to the vibe I had in Osaka. Yeah, and I think... But I think maybe the fact that it's not all of that into... Like, Tokyo's yeah. got everything. Oh, no, exactly. A bit more of that stuff. Um, yeah. And that's probably right. Yeah, and this guy has been there for, you know, years. This seems to be... that This was definitely the um, similar story in both of them where these are people that have been doing it for a very long time and have built up a incredible following of people wanting to try their food because they're doing something a little bit different. Taking the... Definitely taking the traditional idea of street food and you know tw- twisting it a little bit and treating it as high gourmet and not in fancy restaurants not in the, sh- the chef's table stuff was all very high-end restaurants you know set mm. menus where people come in and you know um you, you eat what you're given and you this do is that. proper street food yeah this is this is the actual street food so um the bangkok one i spent a, i spent a fair bit of time in, in bangkok for work uh, a number of years ago and i mean it's obviously just an incredible city um the food's amazing and the street food is like i've, I've you know, I told a million times the story of the best food that I ate in Bangkok was literally the first place I went to any time I was hungry. Like, whatever was the nearest thing was always just, like, the most incredible thing. And whenever I got a recommendation for a restaurant or something like that, I would go there and be disappointed. So um, seeing them talk about this, but it's also very interesting because um, in Bangkok there's been a recent uh, government... The government has taken a harsher look at um, the street vendors and have really tried to crack down on a lot of... 
um, the a lot of the basically street food culture because it's been encroaching on public space. Bangkok, like everywhere, is getting more and more crowded, harder for people to get around, and they're trying to say that these um, they they really try to paint a, a a bad picture about the or or a picture that the street vendors were not um, helping uh, with those problems and that that were a bit of a, a blight on um, Bangkok, which is of course insanity. So this show does a great job of kind of looking at how that's affected the um, street food culture but also highlighting how important it is. Uh, and just re- the episode itself um, is about Jay Fi, who's uh, this does these amazing, um, very simple twists on the local food and her backstory was incredible just talking about how she kind of came up as a, um, uh, you know, watching her mum slave away in the markets making these chicken noodles and how she wanted to, eventually she um, found herself in the opportunity where she had to do that uh, as a job and she just decided that she was going to take it somewhere different and she started using um, different ingredients and she took out a loan so she could buy some um, prawns basically <laughs> and um, turn that into a, a, a dish and start charging more for it and from that she managed to get her own little corner in her own restaurant and just incredible and it goes right through um, her life story to very recently where she was awarded a Michelin star and now it's become this very big focus on the restaurant and the rest of her family and her kids and stuff have quit their careers basically to come and work for her because it's it's taken off in such an amazing way so just the idea of like you get this incredible food you get these incredible stories about real people who have made a really and almost without exception they're people who have taken a risk at some point in their lives and done something really uh not expected of them and left the sort of the 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 comfort of their mediocrity basically to try something different and um have made a big success of it so it's just unbelievable watching. I wouldn't recommend doing it in the morning when you're hungry. Um, I'm, I'm as, hungry as right I now. Did, watching all this delicious food get cooked. But um, yes, it's fantastic if you like. I mean, if you were a fan of Chef's Table, you've probably already watched it. But if not, it's just fantastic. And also, I mean, it has a real travel element to it too because it, it is um, focusing on a different city in each episode. And because street food is a massive part of traveling and stuff. Mm. So you really get a good sense of that too. So I think it's just like as far as quote-unquote lifestyle kind of TV goes. I mean, you couldn't make a better show than this, I don't think. Yeah, no, I'm definitely going to give this one a look. Now, I've got an idea for a show I just want to pitch you. Excellent. Okay, so I was in Japan last year. Like, I spent a month in Japan, which mm. is just an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Now, when I was going around, like, I love ice cream. I think yes. you're, it's well documented. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, I got very excited when I was walking around Japan and saw how many different vendors sold, like, their own takes on soft serve. Mm. Okay. Although, as they call in Japan, it's a soft cream. Oh, right. So, different flavor variations of the cream. Absolutely. And different... Uh, well, I mean, essentially, you'd really find, like, a lot of consistency where, like, there'd be a lot of chocolate everywhere. Sure. But, like, that'd just be, like, different types of ice cream and, like, there was always just, like, a different take on it. Like, there were different levels of quality involved mm. and whatnot. But there was a lot of pride and consideration given to uh, Japan. Like, there's always a lot of pride. Yes consideration give us a lot of things that are sold but just that each of these soft serves and what i think i understood about the culture and no one explained this to me this is kind of what i gathered around the place when you go to train stations there's always like confe- well i'm going to call it a confectionery thing but like there's a place you can go for like sort of gifted chocolates and candies oh, yeah, sure, and other sure. types of things and the whole idea is that when you're traveling it's generally custom to bring back some sort of gift to people. Oh, yes. And so you'd usually stop by the train station, buy like one of these sort of things. And so the culture of desserts in Japan was heavily based around the idea of dessert being a gift rather than it is about like your own gluttony. Yes. Which is how I consume desserts. <laughs> yes, yes. 
course. And so soft creams, when they're selling it around, the idea of the soft cream is that it's a it's a treat that's just for you. Ah, yes. Okay? Because it's ice cream, like you can't give it to somebody because it's going to melt. Yeah. So it really is a gift just for you. So it's like a little quite like gluttonous gift that you give yourself. A little indulgence. Yeah, absolutely. And so what I'd like to do is go around Japan just taking a look at people's different soft creams and how it's sort of shaped by the regions and whatnot. So if you want to pony up some money, people, come and talk to me. I've got a documentary idea. I was just going to say, I know there's a lot of influential people in the television industry listen to our podcast. and you can exclusively only powerful people in the industry. You can consider that the pitch. Yeah. Um, You know where to contact us. I'm going to get on board this, Dan. I just want you to know. With my extensive knowledge of um, cooking shows, I think I'll come in handy. Exactly. Uh, And yeah, we'll be ready to do that anytime in the second half of this year. Yeah, always be watching productions. It starts now. But man, I want some soft cream so hard. So good, me too, man. Now, Chris, yes, I watched something recently as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, do you want to know what it was? Yes, please tell me. Oh uh, yeah, Dan, what did you watch? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I saw a. As I said, I've been watching a lot of movies. Yes, I saw this documentary called At the Drive-In. We haven't taken paychecks yet because we want to put everything back into the drive-in. Everybody wants to make money. Nobody wants to do it for free. But the idea is to save the drive-in and to keep it going. So all three of us, we worked for free last year, basically. I'm going down 443, and I see the marquee, the big red arrow. And I thought, you know, the first impression was, oh, abandoned driving. I should go check that out. It's cool to be a part of this because it's like you're a part of movies in kind of like a different way. You really feel like you're part of this bigger thing. We're here purely out of love of film, purely out of love of this history that the drive-in has, and... Yeah, there's no other way to say it besides it's it's a passion project to the extreme. Now, Chris, I am very much obsessed with... I've got an, a US Amazon Prime Video account. Mm-hmm. And if you go in there, you find lots of very cheaply made documentaries about lots of like niche subject matters mm-hmm. around the place. And I found this documentary on there called At The Drive-In. And literally, I was looking for something that would fill just over an hour of viewing. And this filled the bill perfectly. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so I've had it in my queue for ages and I thought, you know what? Right time length. Life. Tick. Exactly. So the entire sort of premise of this is that it's a drive-in in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And the drive-in hasn't made money for years. The people who are running the drive-in, they just go like, you know, we're just shutting it down. It's just ridiculous. Okay, the guy who owns the land that the drive-in's on, he didn't want to sell it to anyone. He liked the idea that he had this drive-in that's on the property. Yeah. Okay, so a guy that I think he'd just been working at the drive-in, he's just like, you know what, I'm going to take over the drive-in. I can't afford to pay anyone, but to the local community of film enthusiasts that are around, if you want to come and volunteer your time at the drive-in, we're going to make this the best damn drive-in that you can around. Wow. So, essentially, what you've got here is that... Um, like myself, you've spent a lot of time in community radio. Yes. Okay. We're in a community radio station as we record this right now. Absolutely. Okay. My experience primarily through Triple Z in Brisbane. Mm. But, you know, I've gotten to know 2SER here in Sydney a little bit and you uh, hear at 2SER quite a fair bit. Um, so, the sort of people that come through community radio, the people that just have a passion and want to contribute to not just the community with the media that they're interested in sort of sharing, but also just that idea of being involved in a community with a very specific purpose. Absolutely. And you've got a love for that. And that's what powers a lot of community organizations. And that's what's happening at this drive-in. Amazing. It's an organization just like that, where these people that just love films, like primarily sort of like Hollywoody sort of like action adventure and like a bit of like cult stuff on the side as well. Like Not necessarily. 
necessarily film academic sort of nerds. No, but just like proper nerds. Yeah, yeah. Okay, where the best night that they're going to have for a few months is that screening of Back to the Future that they're doing. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so like they've got these regular nights that they'll sort of stage where, you know, they'll put on, say, Back to the Future's one through three. And so people will come along in dressed in, like, yeah, in one night. So Oof. they'll come dressed in costume and a guy comes in the DeLorean and, you know, that sort of thing. Wow. So it's just this rundown park in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania and a cinema, uh, drive-in screen that's still up somehow because they don't have money to really invest in this. And like one of the big traumatic moments in the documentary is that they've been resist. Okay, so the entire reason why they're screening sort of older movies and not the most recent things came from at a time when they were trying to schedule Guardians of the Galaxy as ah, they yes. drive in. So they were screening Guardians of the Galaxy, but they looked around and said, well, every other cinema and drive-in that's sort of within distance of here are all screening the same thing. How can we compete with that? We're not making any money here, so we need to do something different. So they said, well, let's get rid of this. Plus also, it was getting harder and harder to screen films because the film distributors were sending, wanting to send things digitally yeah, sure. where they only had a proper film wow. projector. And they thought, well, the people that are interested in this only want to see it projected on film anyway. Plus, it would cost us like 100 grand to buy a digital projector that's up to standard. Mm. So like they just kept on playing film. And so wow. all the film that they were playing was stuff they could source around the place. And it was cheaper for them and they could keep it running. But one of the big sort of moments in the film come from, they've got a screening where they're screening, it's, I forget the name of the evening they came up with, but it was Jurassic Park and Jaws back to back. Wow. Okay. So Great it's like, double. Yeah. It's about like Jaws and biting. So they're like, we're going to play Jaws, except they get told that afternoon from the distributor, we can't get you the film for Jaws. So they were screening Jurassic Park, but they knew that they couldn't do Jaws. So this local sort of teenage nerd that sort of hangs out with them all, he's like, well, I bought this like digital projector. And I reckon that even though it's just like a small digital projector to like play movies inside the lobby of the drive-in, it's like by the candy bar concessions. Okay, maybe we can actually project it out on a big screen. So a few days prior, he'd been playing around, just thought that he could do that. And he came, but you couldn't actually do it at a thing where if you paid your ten dollars for your car load to turn up and see this film, like it looked crappy just seeing this really badly projected yeah. thing. But he thought that if he went to the local uh, like hardware stores and got some overhead transparency projectors, yeah, he could create enough light from them. Okay, to be able to actually amplify the wow. bulb inside this cheap projector that he had and actually make it a good experience. So you can see they actually put in a bit more money and effort into that and bought like three cheap sort of office projectors yeah. and they sync them up. And so they're projecting digital stuff onto the screen. Wow. And so instead of playing, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 or whatever's going to be coming through, they're just playing like weird VHS stuff that they've got and wow. like going into the archive and playing sort of stranger stuff. The documentary itself, it's not amazing by any means. Sure. The characters aren't really that interesting. Okay, the actual drive in itself, not the most fascinating place in the world. <laughs> if I was like going on holidays and I was going to be like near Pennsylvania somewhere, I would make an effort and hang out there for a night, but it's not like it's particularly exciting. You're not going to Pennsylvania yeah. just for that reason. The filmmaking's not incredible. Like it's, it's a pretty basic thing. But what really comes through in a documentary and why I was so excited and enthusiastic watching it was just the passion of the people involved in this, where they were just everyday people who just really love movies and like the idea of creating a space for people to come and enjoy movies with them. And so they're doing that on a nightly basis. That's fantastic. It's I guess- just incredible. Using the um, there'd be awesome opportunities for like, uh, you know, g- getting to it, it's it's a skilled job running the projector and stuff. And I know there was lots of people that were um, you know, left in the lurch when the film projector stopped being used in cinemas around here. So I love that idea too of sort of yeah. know, outdated tech still being kept alive and and they were talking and about the fact their- that their screen is like the biggest place that you'd be able to see projected film in the state. Yeah, wow, isn't that amazing too? Because yeah. it just doesn't exist anymore in any real 
um, in, in, in a big mainstream way. Absolutely. So I just want to say, like, I don't think it's the greatest documentary, but I think there's a lot of value in seeing it still. Okay. And so, as I said, in the US, you can see it on Amazon Prime Video there. It's not here on Amazon Prime Video, but I noticed that you can buy the DVD and you can probably like import it around the place. So oh, cool. There's definitely ways you can track it down. It'll just cost a little bit more than the limited investment <laughs> I put into it. <laughs> I um, grew up in a small town with the driving as our only form of entertainment mm. at all. Um, so I saw countless films at the drive-in um, as a as a early, uh, probably a, a kid and a young teenager. Um, what's the best movie you've ever seen at the drive-in? Oh God, that's a that's maybe the greatest question of all. <laughs> so when I was a kid, my parents used to take us to the drive-in all the time because you know it was a cheap way to yeah. take an entire family out, and you got like two films for like twenty bucks or something. Contained space, contained space. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can take your kids out, and it's not that big an issue. They can fall asleep, drive so, them home. Um, the films that I have strong memories of seeing, and I don't know if these are the best films I saw at the drive-in, but they're also amazing movies. I know I saw Point Break in the drive-in. Oh, my God. Lethal Weapon 2. Milo and Otis. Yeah. <laughs> poor Milo and Otis. Poor the many Milos and poor the many Otises. Oh. If you don't know that Milo and Otis and you like animals... Don't watch Milo and Otis. Don't watch Milo and Otis and do some reading up about Milo and yeah. Otis, because that film, not it's cool. A, no. No. Uh, what else did I see? That I saw Lombarda, The Forbidden Dance. <laughs> <laughs> this is a much better answer than I was hoping for. Yeah, so I've seen many great films at the drive-in. I also, and I might have talked about this on a podcast. I know we discussed this, <laughs> but I remember seeing one of the Superman movies, probably Superman 3, yeah, and well, like it was at this playground that was like underneath the thing. So I've got memories of watching Superman up on a big screen. That's like, so awesome. While on a swing. Um, my favorite, oh, I actually got to see, um, I saw Natural Born Killers. At the um at the drive-in, which is just I think the ultimate drive-in film, so yeah. that was really a fantastic experience. And I also, um, but one of my favourite experiences was going to see Home Alone for the first time. Oh wow! And um, I don't know if the young people would know this, but when the films got delivered to the projection, uh, to the, to the cinema or the drive-in, they come in four separate reels, and then it's part of the projectionist's job to put the reels together in the correct order. Mm. Um, something that this projectionist failed to do for that particular <laughs> screening of Home Alone. So there's a rather long Those setup. Poor wet bandits. <laughs> there's a rather long setup where um, Kevin gets, um, you know, the family's getting ready to go away. Uh, the family go away. Kevin realizes he's home alone. Slaps his cheeks. Screams. Ah, and in the very next scene, the family arrived home, and this tended to where there was a bunch of you know there was a great reunion, and um, the the credits ro- uh, the credits were about to roll, and then uh, all of a sudden Kevin was alone again. It was very very fun and very confusing, and um, we tried to get our money back just to be jerks, and they wouldn't do it. What <laughs> they provided with an avant garde experience, yeah. and I know that I'm still talking about some thirty years later. That's crazy. Um, Can I actually talk about one of the like best like driving experience that I actually had? Absolutely. Oh, wait, no, I can't talk about that on the podcast. But another time that I had that was really fun at the drive-in was uh, it was part of a, you know, like there's movie screenings, like promotional things for new films yeah. coming out. Uh, there was a tie-in with Triple J, mm. and I remember getting some tickets through them, and I got to see the Grindhouse, uh, Quentin oh. Tarantino film, Death Proof. And because Grindhouse are like the uh, Rodriguez film and the Tarantino film back to back, they only screened for us the Tarantino film, but it was like, it's made as an ultimate drive-in yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah. 
Well, that's what I mean, natural born killers, when you look back on it. No, that's exactly, that's what reminded me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Great stuff. I miss the driving. I'd love to go. I've never been to the one in Sydney. Have you been to the one? Uh, I have. I've been there a couple of times. Uh, I think it's a little bit expensive for a driving experience because the driving to me should be a little bit cheap. Well, that's, you just got to have people hiding in the boot. That's how you cut down (laughs) on the cost. That's (laughs) absolutely. That's how I remember it. Um, Excellent. At the driving, I'm going to check that out. I hope I can find it. Yeah. Like it's not too hard to find, but it just require a bit more effort than just pressing play on a random streaming service. Yeah, it's a bit more effort than I'm used to. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Mm. But anyway, Chris, that's all I've got this week. All right. Well, that, I think that means we're done. I think it does. Legally, we have to leave. <laughs> Excellent. Um, thanks again uh, for inviting me on the podcast, Dan. No, dude, the pleasure. It's always mine. <laughs> and um, we will be back next week and around about the same time. Absolutely. If you enjoy this podcast, let your friends know the podcast exists. Because that's the hardest thing when you're producing a podcast. Because I can only tell people so often, <laughs> check out the podcast. And they tune out. And they tune out. Because <laughs> they've heard me bang on about podcasting for like 10 years. People are done with me and podcasts. But if you like the podcast, let people know and say, hey, look, there's a fun podcast. It's two very handsome guys. That's all about the TV shows they watch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Um, and I've got nothing else to say. Yeah. Uh, sign up for the newsletter at abw.substack.com. One, one comes every day. It, yeah. it, it, it's amazing. Uh, on Fridays, content. I tell people about the new things that have like debuted that week. They can go and track down right there and then. And in this horrible world we live in, um, that's a, nice to have some um, release on the weekend by watching some garbage. Indeed. Cool. Thanks, yeah. Dan. <laughs> Chris, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Catch you next week. See ya.